0: We've today reached the conclusion of our series entitled God, His Land, and His People. And as I hope you remember, we've been talking about this triangle, this dance that occurs that God has ordained and is working through between himself and then in relationship to his land, the creation in which we find ourselves, in relationship to us, and us, of course, in relationship to each other. We've talked also a lot in the last weeks about how this dance has been disrupted in almost every kind of way that you can imagine from occurring within our own personal hearts as well as out into the world and into the systems of the world in which we find ourselves. We've talked about it being disrupted by, uh, we use a, a word called empire, which kind of covers everything. We've talked about the destruction of the land. Remember, we started with the story of the workers cutting trees to make a, a road in Kentucky. And the concept there was, um, and, and this is something we all struggle with, because there's a lot, let's use it. Because there's an abundance, let's consume abundantly. We talked about Manifest Destiny, this movement of America into the West with this idea that America had some kind of a mission, some of us said it was given by God, to remake and redeem the West. We talked about this lack of Sabbath rest that we all experience, the inability to rest ourselves as well as give our land the rest that it should have. We talked about the colonization of Africa. What is the opposite of the kindly use of the land instead turns into exploitation so that many African lands, including almost all West African lands, are no longer able to feed themselves. We've talked about inequality, economic, racial, and gender inequality. We've talked about how the nature, how the creation is God's megaphone. The prophets use this. They don't use the word, but they... They describe this happening a lot, that that creation screams and cries out. We've talked about sloth as an act of commission, not just an act of omission, not just lying on the couch, but actually undoing God's good work of creation and preservation of the world. And we've talked about idolatry, the thirst for power, the thirst for approval, the thirst for control, the thirst for comfort. And in general, our focus has been on the land. It's been kind of rurally focused. Well, as you know, uh, we live, most of us, in cities. Half the world's population now lives in cities. Nearly two-thirds of the world's population will live in cities by 2050. 2050. So that's an increase from today of about two and a half billion people, and that will make 6.7 billion people will be living in cities by 2050, which isn't that far away. U.S. cities in 2015, and these figures are probably still about the same, are home to 62, almost 63% of the U.S. population. The land mass of cities comprises about 3% of the land area, but 66 two-thirds, 66% two-thirds of our people in America live in cities. So we have to think about cities. And now I quote from Davis's book, scholars often cite the biblical suspicion of cities, and there is some truth to that. No city has an entirely positive reputation among the biblical writers. No capital city, including Jerusalem, escapes prophetic denunciation and predictions of doom. Prophetic judgment on any given city is rendered on the basis of how it treats those under its dominion. Listen carefully to the next sentence. Righteousness and justice are fulfilled when those who have some choice about how power is exercised remember those who have little or no choice. So when those of us who have power have some choices in what we do, remember those who have little or no choice, that's when you begin to see righteousness and justice happening. The question is, does the city, the most widely visible symbol of royal sovereignty, Provide for the needs of, those, of all those within its walls and sphere of influence, or does it function as a colonial power, a parasite on the villages near and far? In the time of the Bible, and in, in, in the, certainly in the time of the Bible, and in, in, in many uh, south of the equator countries nowadays, The villages and the cities are intimately connected with the fields and the farms and the rural land around. They're actually one big unit, and they function together in balance. They need each other, and they know it, and that's the way they operate. What happens when it gets out of kilter is that the city, the royals, the empire, begins to be a parasite upon the lands around it and sucks up the energy and sucks up the production, sucks up the means of living from the countryside. And that's when you begin to get this great injustice and this great imbalance. I, of course, knew this, but one of the things that has just struck me this week as I've been preparing is that throughout the Bible, there is the story of two cities, and it's a powerful story. And it's a story that shows up just about everywhere. Almost from right from the beginning, we're going to start in a minute reading from Genesis chapter 11, all the way through to the last chapters of Revelation. There's this story of these two cities. One city is emblematic of the empire, the parasite, that sucks everything into itself. And the other is Jerusalem, this city that goes in the opposite direction. It doesn't suck all into itself. It gives out and feeds and nourishes. And we're going to follow that story just briefly this morning through the scriptures. First of all, we're going to read the story of the Tower of Babel. From Genesis 11, if you have a Bible, you can open to it or uh, the, the text should appear on your screen. And if you grew up knowing this story as I did, you probably um, uh, didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it unless you went to a foreign country where you couldn't speak the language. And then you cursed the people of Babel who built this big tower. And because they did that, then God made them all have a different language. And that was why when you were in Spain or in Greece or in Mexico or wherever you were, you couldn't find your way to the bathroom or order your cup of coffee. And that's all true, but that's not really the heart of the story. Let's read the story. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there. And there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And I think the key phrase here we find in verse 4. They said to themselves, Let's build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let's make a name for ourselves, and here it comes, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. In other words... They wanted to say, they wanted to stay as a clump in that place. And there were other problems, of course, that they had pride and worshiping, idol worship and all those kind of things. But the fundamental thing that gave them problems was they were clumped together on this piece of land. And that's, of course, what God did. once He gave them all these different language, you notice the end of verse nine, From there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. They wanted to do this direction. God says, no, I want you to go in that direction. That's what the faithful city does. And that's what Jerusalem was intended to do. As you read about Jerusalem all through the Old Testament, that's what you read about it. It's this... Place where where God has, God has come to dwell upon the earth. And from Jerusalem out goes this blessing. And I just want to read two verses from the Psalms. One is from Psalm 48, the verses 9 to 11, which should appear on your screen in a second. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple, in the midst of Jerusalem. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches... To the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion, that's Jerusalem, be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. So you see in this verse this movement out, right? Your praise and your righteousness, your justice, fills the ends of the earth. And then Psalm 87, verses 5 and 6. And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her. In other words, all the peoples of the world are rooted here in Zion. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. So all peoples have their identity, their birth certificate, so to speak, in Jerusalem. But they're scattered from out of Jerusalem over all the earth. So you have these two cities. Babel or Babel or Babylon. From now on, we'll be calling it Babylon, but it's the same concept, the same word, and Jerusalem. And both of these cities go bad. You remember the story of Babylon, this great empire... And then this great city of Babylon, one of the wonders of the world, that had conquered the world and had came in, come in and taken Jerusalem, captured Jerusalem. And one of the Jewish young men that was taken to uh, Babylon to to live in Babylon in exile was Daniel. Perhaps you've heard that Daniel in the di- in the lion's den and the other stories of Daniel. And Daniel had God's favor, and he got the favor of the king, and he he. he He rose to a high position within the the kingdom of Babylon. And after King Nebuchadnezzar died, his son, Belshazzar, became king. And Babylon was in this process of doing what the Tower of Babel was doing, sucking up all of the resources of the world, the known world at that time, into itself. And God said, I've had enough of this. So remember in Daniel chapter 5, there was this big party that belshazzar threw think of some ball in the white house or a ball in the in buckingham palace in london or something like that and it was as opulent and as rich and as luxurious as it could possibly be and it was designed to show the power of the empire with belshazzar at its top the top of his uh, position and power. And then this hand appears on the wall. And it writes these words. And no one can understand what the words are. So finally, Daniel's called in. And Daniel says, God has given me the interpretation of these words. And I quote from Daniel 5. This is the interpretation of the matter. meaning the first word, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Babylon will fall. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Instead of doing what you were supposed to do as a faithful city, you've been a parasite. And you've gathered riches to yourself. And you've become empire. And you've been found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Therefore, you will not stand. And that night, King Belshazzar was killed. And all through the Old Testament, there's this judgment that the prophets speak out against Babylon. Partly because she, with great cruelty, conquered Jerusalem and destroyed her. That's part of the reason. But also, and maybe primarily, because of the injustice and this parasite nature of Babylon that God just... Could not, could not allow it to stand. It was, it was too damaging to the world he had made. It disrupted this dance too much. But Jerusalem, of course, does not escape judgment either. And for many of the same reasons. The prophet Micah, we read from Micah 1, verse 5. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. So Micah is speaking to the northern kingdom, to Israel, and to the southern kingdom, Jacob. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? Samaria was the capital city of the north of Israel, the powerhouse, the Washington, D.C., And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Both of these high places, both of these centers of power are coming under judgment. And then in chapter 2, the verses 1 to 3, Micah says, "To To these empires, to these cities, woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. You you see what he's doing? He's describing what empire does, what power does. They work evil in their beds during the night, and then as soon as they get up in the morning, they perform it because they have the power to do so. They covet fields and seize them. See that? This is the rural areas. Remember, we we listened a few weeks ago to the story of King Ahab and Naboth? This is it. They covet fields, they seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. This is what cities do if they're consumed by being empire. Therefore, thus says the Lord Behold, against this family I am devising disaster. I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to bring disaster upon you. I can't let this evil and injustice stand. From which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily or in pride for it will be a time of disaster. But Jerusalem and Babylon called to be sources of fruitfulness and shalom and well-being in the world in the Old Testament end up both under judgment because they were parasites and they sucked everything into themselves and oppressed the land and the peoples for whom they were responsible. And these themes continue in the New Testament. Next week, Dan is going to be preaching on Palm Sunday, and I don't know if he's going to say this, but I've said this before in sermons on Palm Sunday while I've been here, the week before Passover in Jerusalem, from the West, Pilate, the governor, the symbol of empire, took thousands of soldiers and marched up the hill and marched into Jerusalem. Because at Passover time, all the Jews came to Passover and it was a time where insurrection might happen if it was going to happen. And Pilate believed that he needed to show up with all the power of empire in order to suppress the possible insurrection and rebellion of the oppressed peoples. And on Palm Sunday, as I don't think, no, no one knows if it was the same day or not, but around the same time, another king entered Jerusalem from the east on the foal of a donkey, Jesus. And so you see these two, these two powers coming together and clashing and ending up in that week in the Son of God, the King of the Jews, as Pilate put on his cross... being killed. And everyone thought, we're done. Now empire can go on. But that wasn't true. Because Jesus rose again from the dead. And when he rose again from the dead, the revolution began. And his disciples never understood this only or primarily as an individual spiritual transaction. They understood it as this kingdom of Jerusalem crashing against the empire of Babylon, which at that time they they believed was Rome, and eventually destroying Rome. And that's what we read about in the book of Revelation. And I'm going to go with you to Revelation chapter uh, 18. Hopefully you remember this from my series on Revelation of a couple years ago. After this, says John, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living." And if you have a chance this afternoon to read some more in chapter 18 of, of Revelation, there's more descriptions there of the injustice and the and the oppression that was committed by by Rome, which again John called Babylon. Okay? So right at the end of the Bible, John in this vision from Christ assures us that the Empire, with its parasitical Uh, appetite and its it's compulsion to use violence and power to oppress and to suck up and to consume and to destroy will itself be destroyed and what will come in its place Revelation 21 1 to 4 then I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. Which city? Jerusalem. Isn't that weird? Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Empire has passed away. God is dwelling with it with man in this city of Jerusalem. Because of that, there will no longer be any tears or death or mourning or crying or pain. Because empire is gone. See see this wonderful story? And then John goes a little further, or God reveals to John a little further in Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, Flowing from, get the direction, from the throne of God and of the Lamb, that's Jesus, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. 12 months a year, it's yielding fruit. The leaves of the tree were what? for the healing of the nations. What's the direction? This is the direction. No longer will there be anything accursed. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. So out of this city is flowing... To the whole world, this river that's feeding these trees with their fruit every year, every month, for the healing of the nations. In conclusion today, and in conclusion of this whole series, I would like to challenge you a little bit. I'm going to take a little bit of a risk here. In a, in a couple seconds, I'm going to show a tweet. This tweet was part of a blog that was written by Scott M. Coley, who holds a PhD in philosophy from Purdue University and teaches now at Mount St. Mary's University. The blog, if you want to look it up, is called Faith, Philosophy, and Politics. And I'd like to put up a tweet, and I'm going to tell you from beforehand that this tweet may shock you a little bit. Well, in that sense, I'm taking a little bit of a risk. I realize that one tweet of 140 or was it 280 characters can't tell a whole story. And I realize there is nuance, that our story as individuals, our stories as individuals, and our story as a country is multifaceted. And I understand also that there's a difference between what we as individuals do and want to do and what our culture, our history, our society, our our political structures do. So there's all kinds of nuance you can bring here. But I do want to confront you, as we close this series, with a real choice that we have in our lives. Take a look at this tweet. What if America is just like all of the other empires? What if America's power and wealth are not a mark of divine favor but a byproduct of empire building. What if? What direction is your life taking? The force of your life, the reason why you do things? Is it parasitical? Is it drawing to yourself? Is it making yourself great? Or is it moving this direction to heal the nations? And I'm asking that question about every level your own thoughts and desires, how you spend your money, how you spend your time, the choices you make in the supermarket. choices you make with your investments, the choices you make with your profession, the choices you make with how you get along with people. Are you using your power and the ability that you have, that all of us have because of our position to make choices? Are you using that power to suck life up from others? Or are you in this dance with God with Christ in such a way that his spirit is driving you in this direction moving outward and as you think not only about your personal life and your personal choices but as you think about our our society and our culture and our political and our economic structures our racial um, the, the the racial tensions that are between us all of the struggles that we're facing especially as we hopefully end this year of covid where so many of our weaknesses as an empire have been exposed what are we going to do how are we going to vote where are we going to spend our money you could of course ignore everything you could Bible's pretty clear that if you ignore everything, because the the inclination of our hearts is such, you're going to turn into empire. That's just the way it happens. If you don't do anything, you'll be sucked up into this empire way of thinking. It's only when rooted in faith in Christ and driven by the Spirit of God that we can change this direction. Remember, it took a crucifixion and a resurrection to do it. It's not an easy thing. Change our direction and move out so that we begin to be aware of what's happening. Be aware of what our empire is doing. And be not so easy and quick to stamp it as a mark of divine favor. Maybe to say, perhaps what we're doing more than anything else is building empire. And is that what we want to do? Not only because we're afraid of destruction, but because that kind of life is empty. A life of a parasite, a life of sucking up into yourself, is a life that in the end is empty. You end up, as Frederick Buechner says, eating your own carcass. A life that's fulfilling, the life that gives you a reason to get up in the morning, is a life that goes in the other direction. It flows from out of the throne of Christ that's in your heart. And it begins to water and to feed the nations and is to their healing. And that's what this whole series has been about, to try to see these themes in the scriptures and invite me and invite you as individuals to invite us as family units, to invite us as a Trinity community to think about what we can do to join this dance. And as we join this dance, be bringing, by the grace of God, healing to the nations. And I would really like to encourage you to actually think concretely about these things. Not just go away and, oh, that was a good sermon, or that was interesting, or fine, now let's move on. What needs to change in your life so that you can move from being a content inhabitant of the city of Babel, or Babylon, to a joyful and thankful and fruitful inhabitant of the city of Jerusalem? Because that's the place where I think we all, in our heart of hearts, want to be.